Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. Before we get to today's show, can you take care of something for us? Please rate and review Health Now wherever you get your podcasts. It will help other listeners find out about us. And if you haven't already, be sure you subscribe to the show too. You wouldn't want to miss an episode, would you? Thank you. Now, on to the show. Today we're speaking with Dr. Michael Sag, Associate Dean for Global Health and Director of the Center for AIDS Research at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. With qualifications like that, you might think he's a great expert to discuss the coronavirus pandemic, and you'd be right. But Dr. Sag has a rather unique perspective on COVID-19. He, along with his son, Harry, is a survivor, and he's here to talk to us about what life with and after COVID-19 is like. Dr. Sag, welcome to Health Now. Great to be with you. First, how are you and your son uh, doing now? How are you feeling these days? We're doing okay. Uh, the illness was back in March. Um, he got, he's younger, like about 30 years, so he got well a lot quicker than I did. But um, he's now living here in Birmingham for the time being, and we see each other often. He's doing well. Uh, it took me about three, four weeks to kind of get back to normal, and I've been back at work since uh, mid-April. Okay, well, that's really great to hear. Um, before we talk about what your experience with the with the condition was like, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do for work on a on a daily basis? So my background is in HIV and AIDS research. I started working uh, in that field in the mid '80s when the epidemic was just exploding, and went through the phases uh, where there was not a test for it, and then there were no medications, and then ultimately we converted to controlling the virus, and now folks are living with a relatively normal lifespan, and they don't transmit to others when they're on therapy, which is pretty exciting. So my job as a director of the Center for AIDS Research is coordinating the 170 or so uh, academic investigators here at UAB, and then also I'm Associate Dean for Global Health, which means that I'm helping to coordinate uh, a lot of projects from a lot of people within the School of Medicine who are working at sites overseas. That's obviously been curtailed a little bit by the COVID epidemic, but uh, that's what I do normally. Okay. So obviously, infectious diseases is your area of expertise, but how much did you know about coronaviruses and COVID-19 before March of this year? Well, I paid attention to the SARS and MERS epidemic, and I knew a, a bit about that. I also serve... SARS and MERS, we should say, are other uh, types of coronaviruses, right? Correct. So SARS was the first one. It was a coronavirus uh, about 2003, uh, limited epidemic, uh, mostly in China, but spread elsewhere. And then MERS is a Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome that started mostly in the Middle East, hence the name and spread uh, also to other parts of the world, but never reached pandemic proportions and was uh, basically self-contained. Um, I serve on the Board of Scientific Counselors of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and I've done that for many years. So I've seen that part of the epidemic up close through the activity of Tony Fauci and his team. I see, okay. And when you, when you saw the news reports I think it was, you know, the early part of this year in January coming from 
China and you know other places. What was your your reaction when you sort of saw the speed of the uh, how the disease was progressing in other places? There was an ID Grand Rounds presented by David Friedman, who's one of our faculty, and he does uh, international health. And this was about January fourth. And I remember at the end of this talk, he talked about this so-called Wuhan outbreak, and I thought, sort of shrugged my shoulders and thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder where that's going to go. And uh, I had no vision that it was going to turn into the global pandemic that it that it has. Right. It seems like it's been sort of the worst case scenario, the worst nightmare scenario for a lot of uh, people in your field in infectious diseases. Absolutely. And, you know, this type of thing had been talked about with the H1N1 influenza possibility for becoming a huge pandemic. And people talk about it in all the schools of public health and their intro to epidemiology as a possibility. But I never thought that we'd see a reality like we're experiencing right now. Right. Well, now we have an example for the, for the textbooks of the future, I suppose. Um, but I want to talk a little more about your specific situation. How do you think you were exposed to COVID? I read that you'd just been out of town um, just before you came down with it. Um, and also, how was, how was your son exposed? He's a physician, is that correct? Yes, he's a physician and working in, was working in Manhattan at NYU as a part-time hospitalist. But uh, my story is that um, I had gone to Boston that first week of March uh, to help with the International Conference on HIV and Retroviruses. It's our big meeting every year. And as I arrived, they had just made the decision to convert from a live in-person meeting to a virtual meeting. Uh, because it thought it was a bad idea to congregate a lot of people, 4,000 infectious disease experts, at a time when it was becoming pretty clear this virus was spreading. So at the end of that meeting, that was a Wednesday, the second week of March, I was talking to my son, Harry, who lived in Manhattan. I was in Boston. He wanted to come back to Birmingham for a visit and wanted to bring his dog, who wouldn't fit into the seat in front of him. So he wanted to drive and I thought, well, I'll just keep him company for the ride back to Birmingham from Manhattan. I took the train to Manhattan um, uh, on that Thursday, and then we rented a car pretty quickly and got out of Manhattan uh, within an hour of my arrival. So we had a 20-hour ride, including the stayover in Virginia. And on the second day, he said he wasn't feeling great. And I drove the whole second day. And when we got into the driveway here in Birmingham, about 7 p.m., he said, I think I've got fever. And then we kind of looked at each other like, uh-oh. Oh, and we, we knew this was COVID. So we quarantined ourselves both in our house. And uh, we ultimately, I developed symptoms that next day, the Saturday. We got tested on Monday, and we were both positive. Wow. Was he treating uh, COVID patients at his uh, hospital in, in Manhattan? Well, he works at NYU, and they were seeing, starting to see their surge happen, but I don't think he picked it up necessarily at work because he's only working part-time. He probably picked it up somewhere else in the city, but regardless, he definitely had it by the time he and I jumped on the car together, and even though we were pretty, we were pretty assiduous about wiping things down in the car and that type of thing, we just weren't wearing masks, mm -hmm. and sitting in a car knowing now what we know about how the virus is transmitted. I'm sure that's where I picked it up. Right. Oh, my. 
Um, I've heard you describe your experience with COVID-19 as two weeks out of the movie Groundhog Day. Uh, tell <laughs> us what you mean by that and what it was like day to day with this disease. Sure. So my son uh, had about a six-day illness that was gone by that Wednesday. I started having symptoms of mild fatigue, headache, knew I had a viral illness, didn't have any fever initially, and Harry cleared it in about five or six days. And I, by my sixth day, which was Wednesday, I was feeling pretty good and thought I had cleared it as well. That evening started the Groundhog Day experience where about five, six at night, I'd start to feel really bad have chills, headache, body aches, what I call fuzzy thinking. I couldn't focus on a computer screen um, and couldn't really get comfortable. And the cough started increasing around that time and some degree of shortness of breath. And this would persist all night long. And the wee hours of the morning were the worst where I would be following my oxygen levels with the pulse oximeter throughout the evening uh, and night. And I would drift downward towards 90%, which is abnormal. I want to be above 95%. And I had those horrible feelings just sitting there in that quarantine room alone saying, is it, what is the next 15 minutes going to bring? Am I going to deteriorate and have to call 911 and go to the hospital? And what's interesting is that I never really was that fearful of dying. That, you know, if that died, I died, I guess. I was much more concerned about deteriorating and ending up on a ventilator where I would be in a room alone with a tube in my throat and not having anyone around except for the, the staff taking care of me and totally out of control. That's what really bothered me. So by the next morning, I would feel better. And I thought, okay, well, I survived that. and It's over with. Now I'm going to move on. And that morning I felt so good that I thought it was done with all this. And then sure enough, it five, six o'clock the next night, same exact re repetition with my, what I call my Rod Serling Twilight Zone nights. Wow. And this happened for eight nights in a row. Finally, on the 14th day, I woke up, uh, symptoms were gone, but I was dreading that evening. And remarkably, it didn't come back. And I was on a path to recovery from there. Wow. Was it just sort of like a gradual dying down of your symptoms? Or did you just sort of um, did it just kind of stop and you were done from that point forward? No, it's, it's, it's more of a persistence. So with influenza, most people have it. They are sick almost immediately. And then after a period of time, say five, six days, they boom, they're, re they're recovered. And that's that. Uh, maybe some residual cough. This disease slowly disappears. So the fever and all the bad stuff was gone by the 14th day, but profound fatigue it would just come out of nowhere, two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon. And whatever I was doing, I'd have to stop, sit down, maybe take a, a power nap, uh, and then I could get back to normal activities. And the cough did go away, but the shortness of breath when I was walking would continue for a little while. And, and even now, uh, I think the fatigue is gone. I, I believe the fuzzy thinking is gone. You can tell me whether I'm talking in complete sentences or not. And the... Uh, but the shortness of breath when I walk up hills or go up a couple flights of stairs um, is still present. So tomorrow I'm getting pulmonary function tests to assess exactly what kind of residual damage there may be, if any. Uh, and then on Friday, I'm going to get a high-resolution CT scan to see if there's any evidence of microscopic scarring or some 
macroscopic scarring because I think there is something wrong. Um, right. Other studies have shown that people have residual heart disease or other sort of damage. So to those people who say 99% of people get well or don't die, that's truth, but it doesn't mean they're normal. So take home point, don't get this if you can help it. Right. And while we're talking about long-term health effects, it seems like we hear pretty much every day some new story about the kind of long-term effects people think might be possible. You mentioned a few like heart damage, lung damage, blood clots, on and on. Um, what do you think are some of the most likely long-term effects? Obviously, this disease has only been around for a few months, so we're not totally sure um, what it will be like when you've had it for years, but do you have any inkling? Yes, and I'm, so ever since I came back to work uh, in mid-April, we started a COVID outpatient clinic. So I've seen dozens, maybe now 100 patients with this, and every case is different. Uh, many are similar to mine, but a lot of people are having residual damage four, six, eight weeks late. They're later after infection. They are still sick. And a lot of it is pulmonary, lung, heart. But the thing I think that's most concerning is the brain. There are people who have residual headaches that don't seem to want to go away. There are people who remain uh, in that fuzzy thinking mode for quite a while, and it can come and go. And there have been strokes. There have been um, other sort of neurologic diseases. Um, loss of sense of smell tends to come back. I think my hearing took a hit during that uh, wow. episode, and it hasn't fully come back. And so I, I just think this virus, once somebody gets it and it sets up shop in the lungs, the biology is that it seems to invade blood vessels. Uh, that's why you see the, the stroke sometimes, but also in micro blood vessels and capillary spaces, clots form, as well as the virus seems to jump into the bloodstream and use it as a subway and, and then takes stops off at every organ system in the body, ranging from the skin to the brain. And that's why this is such an evil actor and what we're dealing with clinically when people show up. Um. How about your son? Has he had any uh, long-term effects from the illness so far? No, he fortunately has been pretty much back to normal. He's, you know, running four to five miles a day and back. But wow. uh, I, I've been able to get on an elliptical and do okay. It's just when I go up hills when I get short of breath. I see. Um, how long do you think it will be before we truly understand, you know, the kind of impact that this disease will have down the road for somebody who's had it? We're learning as we go, we, but the thing to remember is we're only five months into this, and right. um, you can only learn so much in five months, and by definition, the maximum amount of follow-up you can have is five months, so we're going to learn a lot. I, I like to think back to the AIDS epidemic because I know that very well. If you think back to that, the syndrome was first described in June of 1981. We didn't even know what caused it until... Uh, April or May of 83. So we went for over two years, almost two years, without knowing even what was causing it. Didn't have a test until 1985 and the beginning of a treatment until 1987. That's six years. We're five months into this and we not only know the virus, we were able to find its sequence very early. Fauci and his team had a vaccine within two days after the sequence was published in January of 
this year. We have a treatment. We have a test or multiple tests. So we know a lot, but what we don't know is what you just asked. What are the long-term effects? And we're going to have to learn that as we go. You mentioned treatment a moment ago. You have said you tried a controversial treatment, um, hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin. How do you think that worked? I can't tell. I mean, I'm alive to talk about it, so I could, I could give a tip of the hat to it. Uh, personally, in retrospect, I don't think it necessarily did that much. I didn't feel dramatically better. For example, when I had the flu a couple years ago, started Tamiflu, and within hours, I felt markedly better. And then within 12 hours, was almost back to normal because I started early. The, to put it into context for me, during those Rod Serling nights, uh, I would sit there and just want something to do. And again, this relates back to my experience with AIDS in the 80s when there was no treatment. The patients were desperate for something. So during that first week of illness for me, when it got really bad, that's exactly the time that the French produced a, a study that showed that hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin reduced viral levels in 22 patients dramatically compared to no treatment. It wasn't randomized, but at least it looked promising. And mm -hmm. my cousin, who's a rheumatologist, said, we use Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine all the time. I'll write you a prescription. I said, great. So I started it. Uh, day three, I added the azithro just because I studied it a little more. And I had talked to a lot of experts around the world who were colleagues, and they encouraged me to do it, and I did. Um, afterwards, uh, we learned more about it. Uh, and the data that has followed uh, has been mostly showing uh, not nothing harmful to speak of. There's a potential for a cardiac um, arrhythmia that could happen, but it's that would be rare, but also not much benefit. I mean, you could find one or two studies that show a little bit of benefit. Most of them show no benefit. And especially the randomized trials, which would be the best ones, have not shown any benefit at all. So I don't think that's a productive path. Unfortunately, like a lot of this epidemic in the United States, it's been politicized, and I hate that. And right. I would underscore the word hate. I hate the fact that politics has been injected into our management of this epidemic, and it's making not only the lives of the scientists more difficult, it's making the lives of our, of our communities difficult because uh, everything is filtered politically through a lens of either supporting, frankly, the president or being against the president. And speaking as a scientist and a, as a physician, I don't want to think about the president at all when I'm thinking about what to do for patients or what I'm thinking about what science is asking us to discover. Um, and so in my mind, it, it's not political. That's the God's truth. But anytime I'll make a statement, the people listening will be filtering what I say through that lens and firing sometimes some very ugly tweets or Facebook posts, which are, are very disconcerting to me. Um, I'm not trying to take a side. I'm just telling, calling the balls and strikes as I see them. And that's been very frustrating. And it's not just for me. I think it's for all the public health officials and scientists who are trying to stay away from politics. We're getting dragged into it. I think it's also the reason quite honestly, that the United States has fared so poorly compared to other countries where everyone was kind of working together. We're so split apart that we can't even agree almost on whether COVID 
uh, SARS-CoV-2 causes COVID, or some people saying it doesn't exist at all. And I find that hard to understand. Yeah, it seemed like other countries, everybody kind of got on the same page relatively quickly, but it's, it hasn't happened yet for us. Um, not, not at all. I, and you, you've mentioned your um, thinking about your past work with the AIDS epidemic. Um, and I wanted to ask, has your work changed any as a result of either your own experience with coronavirus or with the pandemic in general? Yeah, I think all, myself uh, and all of my colleagues have been what I call sucked into the vortex of COVID. Um, it, it consumes almost every waking hour of the day. And rightly so, it's, it's an emerging, exploding pandemic. Uh, in our neck of the woods here in the South, in Alabama, we're dealing with a major problem here. Um, the caseload is increasing to the point where hospitals are full. Um, the ICUs, I think for the whole state, we only have 12% of total capacity left. UAB is doing a really good job of, of projecting cases and adjusting uh, bed space so, to make room for people, but it's it's a daily challenge that we that we monitor, uh, and it requires all hands on deck, not only in terms of taking care of the patients, but also in terms of creating a strategy for the future uh, as we start to experience more and more caseload uh, down the road here. So uh, all of us are really working so hard on COVID that a lot of our day to day prior jobs are put on the, on the back burner for a while. I wonder if there's any fears that this will set us back, or I've, I've even heard that it will um, set us back in other areas of, of medical research and, and making progress with other diseases. Does that seem likely to you? I, I don't know how, if we compare it to a hypothetical where COVID didn't exist, knowing how much time and energy I and my colleagues have put into this, I can't imagine that, that, that time spent on COVID uh, couldn't, has to have taken away from the other work that we do. And I think you can extrapolate that to um, other centers throughout the country, but also the world. Um, the one thing positive about it is that I think this is the first time, certainly in my lifetime, that I've seen most every scientist that I know is working on the same problem intensively to try to get the COVID situation controlled and managed. And that's a really remarkable thing. But the consequence, the secondary tertiary effects are that while we're focused on that, other things get, as I said earlier, backburnered. And I think it's going to ultimately set back some research. But on the flip side, maybe we'll learn so much about the immune system and response to viruses that there'll be some silver lining benefit to the effort against COVID. Where do you think we are in terms of second waves, which is something we've been hearing a lot about for a long time, it seems. Um, you described the situation back in May as more of a continuation of the first wave. Are we still there? Yeah, and it's getting worse. I, I think we're still in whatever wave. It's Whatever it is, is bad right now. Um, we had, at least in New York, let's take them aside because they had a huge spike and they're now under control because they've done things well. Um, for the rest of us, we were impatient, and we did the right things up front that sort of so-called flattened the curve in April, and then by May, most of the people who are my neighbors uh, were frustrated and impatient, and despite the fact that our numbers didn't hit 
the the precise guideposts that say okay to reopen, we plowed right through them as if they were um, uh, do not enter signs as you're heading towards a cliff, and you just plowed right through them like Thelma and Louise, and we're heading off that cliff now because we ignored the data that were in front of us. And so what's happening is that after that re-release, that re-entry happened in May, we predict, as predicted, started to see an increase. And coming into June and July, this has now caught fire, and we're in the middle of a huge conflagration at this exact moment. And the only way we're going to get it under control is everyone pulling together under consistent messaging that staying at home is something we all should do unless we have to go out. And when we do go out, avoiding large crowds, and when we do encounter anyone, we need to make sure that all of us are wearing a mask, and that mitigates transmission. We're getting better at mask wearing, but we're not where we need to be. And until we get there, short of having to reimpose stay-at-home orders, which are pretty draconian, we're gonna have to, to really get everyone to start wearing a mask regularly, that's what they're doing in New York, and they've got control of the epidemic. Elsewhere, not so much. And speaking of that, if you were looking into, you know, crystal ball for the rest of this year, maybe beyond, how long do you think those measures that you're talking about, social distancing, wearing a mask, and staying home, how long do you think those things will be just kind of part of our life? For a long time. This virus is not going anywhere. You know, we... We can wish it away. We can apply whatever magical thinking that, oh, the heat will kill it. Well, that didn't happen. Why? That's just the nature of the virus. That's what it is. So the sooner we accept the fact that it's here, that it's not going away anytime soon, it'll be with us at least till next year at this time and probably for several years longer. And that's sobering and that's scary, but it's probably what we're going to see. So we can embrace that notion and, and do the right things to mitigate it, the things we have control over, those things I just mentioned. If we all did that consistently, we control the virus instead of the virus controlling us. And how do we know that works? Because every other industrialized country on earth has done that and has had success. And we have not done that yet but it's not too late. Let's start today. Let's start doing all those things well and together, ignore the past for the moment, and let's move forward together. Do you think the, the introduction of a vaccine, whenever that becomes available, or other treatments, do you think that will change the trajectory at all? It has enormous potential to do that. Um, I don't know how many people remembered studying Greek tragedies in high school or college, but in the middle of a tragedy, if the protagonist gets into trouble, the gods come in and, and save them. And the term for that is deus et machina, means that the, the gods come in and pull them out of a bad situation. Mm -hmm. A vaccine would be a deus et machina. That mm -hmm. would save us in a way that we can't perhaps even save ourselves. But if it comes to that, great. But there's no guarantee. The vaccine work looks super right now, but it, we don't have any evidence that it protects. Those studies just started this week, so we're in the last week of July. Um, just yesterday, the first people got dosed in the Moderna trial. It's going to happen in the Pfizer trial and very soon in the AstraZeneca study. 
we're going to have data before the end of this year. The question is, what, is, what are those data going to say? I don't know. We'll find out. But even if it shows what we want it to show, I think we should count on two things for sure. One, scaling up and manufacturing, even though we prime the pump with a lot of government money, is still going to take four to six months to get the vaccine out the door and, and into people's arms as, as an injection. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I think it's impossible to expect that the protection will be 100%. And so a lot of vaccines only work 60% or 70. I'll take that in a heartbeat right now. Right. But it's not going to be 100%. So the other measures like we talked about, distancing, wearing a mask, staying at home as much as we can, will still be at play. Another treatment, I guess you'd call it a treatment, um, that we've heard some about is uh, people like yourself who have had the virus donating convalescent plasma. Um, what do you think about that? Is that something that you are planning to do? I've been participating by donating plasma and cells to research. Uh, and I think some of the plasma may have been used for patient care. I don't know. But yes, that kind of works for a lot of people. It's not 100%. But what that does, in essence, is it gives immunity uh, immediately to somebody in terms of antibodies. Uh, so if somebody's really sick, whatever virus is there can be neutralized by infusing the plasma from somebody who's recovered. And another treatment like that is that some companies have artificially, or at least not artificially, in the the test tube, have created antibody as a treatment, and that that would just be manufactured and then administered that way. A lot more expensive, though. Right. Like you mentioned earlier, we've definitely been learning as we've gone with how to handle this outbreak. How do you think our response to COVID-19 sets us up to handle future outbreaks of a different disease? Well, I, I think we're, we're going to end up learning an awful lot of lessons about what, what, what went well and what, what didn't go well. And those lessons will apply. Uh, it's interesting, if you look back to the flu epidemic of 1918, um, some of the same lessons were learned. We just uh, didn't go through it. And so um, the, the distancing and mask wearing and other things were suggested by that epidemic. But I think we've had such a traumatic experience with this that a lot, a lot of lessons are learned or will be learned that we can apply to future uh, pandemics. Yeah, some if of the they, similarities to the, um, the 19, 1918 flu are kind of eerie even. It's like, you know, you just, it sounds like you're, you know, reading history really mirrors what we're going through right now. Right. Those who, that's an expression, those who uh, forget history are condemned to repeat it. So I think some of our experience has been that. One last question for you. Um, if you had one piece of advice, which you've given us a few so far, but one piece of advice regarding COVID-19 prevention to give to everyone listening right now, what would it be? All of us need to do our part. People say, what can I do? I feel so helpless. What we can do is if we all did the same thing together, we can bring the virus under control. And repeat, staying at home, unless you really need to go out, and we do at times, avoiding large crowds, making sure that any crowd we go into, that everyone is wearing a mask, and if they're not, stay away, and wear a mask anytime you're out in public. If we just did those simple things, we could bring this under control. We should do it together, and do it not only for ourselves and our family, but for our entire community. 
That's great advice. Um, Dr. Sag, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your experience. It was really great to hear um, your bits of wisdom about what it's been like to live through this. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed being with you. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. One more thing before we go, though. Please make sure you've subscribed to our show so you don't miss any of our great episodes. And just a reminder that you can keep up with WebMD's coverage on coronavirus and all things health and wellness on our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hope you'll join us next time.